Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 21st of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The former Taoiseach Bertie O'Hearn was back in Leinster House yesterday to talk about the Good Friday Agreement, the impasse on the Northern Ireland Protocol and how the British government is negotiating these issues with the European Union. The question is, you know, um, I just want to say that British Prime Minister, but I don't know who the British Prime Minister is. <laughs> Changed on the way in. But anyway, um, well, whoever the British Prime Minister is, um, hopefully they, they will t- take a, uh, a bit of a proactive position. Um, quite frankly, I didn't think it was helpful what the, what the British Prime Minister of yesterday said. Um, so maybe whoever is there tomorrow might take, say something different. But what she said yesterday was that even if there was negotiations... Um, that what was in the legislation would be the bottom line. Now, I never tried negotiations that I declared the bottom line before like, I went into the negotiations. So so that's that's clearly not going to solve anything. Right, that's the former Taoiseach, Bertie Hearn speaking to the Good Friday Agreement Committee yesterday. We're going to go to Brussels now, where European leaders have been meeting over a two-day summit, uh, which continues today to discuss uh, predominantly the issue of energy costs. It's been a, a very long meeting, or at least it was yesterday. It ran to uh, 11 hours and in the small hours of this morning uh, it's uh, reported that the 27 countries have come to an agreement on how to cap prices. The Minister for European Affairs is accompanying uh, the Taoiseach on this trip and joins us now. And uh, a very good morning to you, Minister, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. This uh, agreement reached uh, in the early hours of uh, this morning is undoubtedly hugely important for all of us in this country and across the 
European Union as we struggled with uh, the increase in energy costs and the cost of living. But undoubtedly, like everything else, overshadowed by Liz Truss's resignation yesterday. What are people over there saying about it? Well, I think, I mean, look, I mean, people are regardless of what's happening in Britain, quite frankly, at the moment. Um, and no doubt people, that's what people were talking about yesterday. Uh, and indeed, as the Taoiseach was coming into the Europa building where the European Council meets, his trust was uh, resigning. Uh, so we had to give a fairly instant reaction to that. And, you know, I think he was very generous uh, about her. Um, to be no longer the Prime Minister, there's going to be a new Prime Minister in place. I think this is a big problem for Britain. I mean, political instability is never good. Uh, when political parties are looking at themselves, it's never good for political parties, actually, but it's never good for the country in general uh, either. Um, what you do need, I think, everywhere is stable governments that can deliver for the people on the issues that, you know, are on the main agenda of the European Council, which is obviously the issue of energy prices. That's the same everywhere. And I think that's what the public wants uh, leaders and politicians to be dealing with. That's what we're trying to deal with. And I think uh, I would say a lot of British people would like uh, their government to be able to concentrate on as well. Yeah. Has it guaranteed an election in Northern Ireland and that, that will be called now on uh, the 28th uh, because there won't be a functioning administration in Downing Street? Well, look, that certainly uh, looks like it. Even before Liz Trust resigned, it certainly looked like that was going to be the case. I'm not sure that Liz Trust resigning has a huge impact to change that. Um, certainly in terms of changing legislation, I'd say I would have thought that the, 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 the timescale for that is very, very short. Um, so that's certainly looking increasingly likely and, and, and was looking very likely earlier this week. Okay. Uh, and uh, before I ask you about uh, the energy prices, uh, can I, I just ask you about the consequences of uh, the decision of uh, the Prime Minister to resign and what is in the best interest of this country following on from that? Uh, would the Irish government uh, prefer to see a general election take place in the United Kingdom rather than another leadership contest, another Prime Minister who could be in office for 44 days like mistrust or God knows? Look, the Irish government can't get involved in the internal politics of any other country, and we don't want to do that. I mean, obviously, in terms of our relations with Britain, in terms of the negotiations on the protocol, in terms of our, our common interests as two countries, we'd obviously prefer to be dealing with a, a prime minister that was there for a reasonable length of time. Um, but we've no preference to what the, the Tory party does now, or, or, or whether there's an election or not. That's an entirely a matter for the uh, the. Well, I don't know that the prime minister or the king or the, the Tory party members. Have, I, I have no idea, but it's entirely a matter for them. And there is a government there at the moment. Liz Truss is still there for the next few days. That's who we deal with. Uh, and we'll deal with whoever is elected Prime Minister at the end of next week as well. That's, that's all we can do uh, as a separate independent country. OK. Uh, talk to me about uh, the agreement that uh, was reached uh, between uh, the 27 leaders uh, last night, uh, please, Minister. Yeah, well, I think the one thing that I've learned in, in all of this energy crisis, and I think listeners would appreciate as well, is that it's extremely complex. Uh, and that everybody wants lower prices, of course, Everybody wants to make sure that we have a secure energy supply, particularly where countries don't have uh, their own gas or their, their, their own other supplies. Um, so the discussions last night, I mean, at one level are highly technical, um, but at another level, the, the leaders really agreed general principles that will now be brought forward by the energy ministers in the next few weeks uh, and by the European Commission. And broadly, what we're trying to do is limit the price of gas um, in general, um, but also limit the price of gas um, for electricity generation. Um, while ensuring uh, that we have adequate supplies and also making sure that countries like Ireland, which have a, which are on a totally different gas system to the rest of Europe, uh, are protected as well. So there's all that there. And quite frankly, a lot of the, de- a lot of the detail will remain to be worked out uh, by the European Commission 
and by the um, energy ministers, uh, who I suppose deal with this on a day-to-day basis. But I think it is really, really important that you know we have that EU unity, that there was no blockage put uh, on all of that last night, because certainly in the run-up uh, to this European Council, you know, there was definitely different countries were, were, were making shapes or opposing or lining up on, on different views. Um, but I think the leaders have come to a single view last night that they can all live with. Um, but I think everybody has the same mm. objective, which is to make sure that their consumers are paying paying less for electricity and paying less for gas. Uh, who, who was uh, posing or throwing shapes? Germany? Well, uh, look, I mean, at the end of the day, Germany and every single country came together um, last night and agreed these particular conclusions and you know, mandated the Commission and the energy ministers to come up with the, the exact mm. technical solutions. Um, but it, look, it is the case that there's a particular... Uh, model in Spain and Portugal that I think work, seems to work well for them because because they have a huge amount of solar energy, mm. um, but it wouldn't necessarily work for the rest of us. We'd, we'd love if, if it could, but it wouldn't. And they also have a lot of LNG terminals, frankly, as well, and that's that's a help to them. They're importing gas uh, from the sea, mm. um, so those countries were looking for, for for their model to be extended. That's fine. There's no one stopping them doing that. But we, we in Ireland, I mean, look, I mean, yes, we want lower prices for everybody. Yeah. We also have to make sure that we protect jobs and protect people and make sure that the gas still flows mm. um, and not to do anything that would prevent that happening. And, and that that so-called Iberian model wouldn't work for us here uh, because... Uh, well, we, so the experts say, yeah. yeah. Mm. OK, uh, but we haven't really been cheerleaders for CAPs, have we? Well, I, we've been... We want lower prices, but yeah, I think what well, everybody wants, really, that, really as you say, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, 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 but what we're really concerned about is making sure that we have a supply of gas. Mm. Uh, and that's been, to be fair to the Taoiseach, he, he doesn't want a situation where you come in four months' time that some action we've taken uh, or not taken mm. uh, means that somehow the gas stops flowing. Well, is, is, is that the concern uh, now that there is this agreement uh, on price caps that... Uh, when the suppliers can't get the prices they're looking for, um, well, then they may stop supplying gas to Europe. Well, you see, that's always a risk, particularly with LNG, because it comes in ships, and the ships can go anywhere. It's not like a fixed pipeline where the, the, the gas just uh, is piped down to you. But where gas is coming in on ships, um, that, that, that can go literally anywhere. Now, what, one of the things they've done, up to, I mean, I didn't know this, and I expect most listeners didn't know this, but the price of LNG, which has come down a bit, is not reflected in the price of pipe gas. I think what the Commission is trying to do is make sure that it is, and that will bring the overall price of gas down. As more and more people bring in LNG because we've reduced the dependence on, on Russian gas, there's a lot less, uh, a lot less Russian gas coming in uh, to the European system. Um, so that will hopefully mean uh, for lower prices. But the thing that we've always got to be conscious in Ireland, and I don't want to be raising expectations too much, uh, is that we are on a totally different system uh, to the European markets. So our system is, is we buy our gas, as it turns out, from, well, off the carb field. Uh, we buy our gas from the, the London market as well, so it comes through Britain and Norway. So we're in a to- totally different system. Uh, and we've limited LNG and storage, as we know. Now, I think one of the, the big things that people wanted was done already, and that's the windfall tax. So there will be a windfall tax, for example, on the carb gas that will bring a lot of their profits back into the Irish government coffers to be able to use for um, en- energy grants, effectively, or to protect consumers and to protect business. Um, and we'll also be able to do that with the renewable companies as well. And that's already decided. So that was really a major decision that I think will have a huge benefit, but that's already decided last month. This decision last night and the work that will flow from it, and it's important to remember that this work will continue for the next few weeks, uh, will, I think, help to ensure that we have stability in the markets, uh, lower prices, while also making sure that we still have gas. And hmm. I think the EU deciding that it will have some kind of joint purchasing mechanism, uh, I think, would be really, really helpful. And we did that with vaccines. 
uh, and now we're going to try to do it with gas. And to be fair, the work has been ongoing on that for, for months, and it's not something that can just be switched on overnight, unfortunately. Okay, uh, we're about to improve our storage in this country as well uh, by purchasing uh, 24 things. I'm not sure what they're called officially, but they're being described as jet engines, uh, which would store gas. Uh, the hope is uh, that that will supply uh, the country if there is a shortage next winter, 23-24. Uh, this is some €350 million Euro that uh, the government is about to invest in these jets, but it's also going to fast-track the planning and emergency legislation will go through the Oireachtas very quickly next week, I think. Well, look, that will be dealt with by Minister Ryan next week. I mean, what's happening at European level in general on this whole issue of permissions is that we want to speed things up because at the moment, if you do want to do anything like that, uh, the permission time is really, really long. Um, and that's that's a problem, whether it's for renewable or whether it's for emergency gas supplies. So that's been a focus of the EU leaders mm. uh, and a focus as well of the energy ministers as well. Now, the detail of that will be, as was fully announced by Minister Ryan, um, but at European level, the, the, the whole idea of the length of permissions and the storage of gas is obviously a big, big concern. Sure, but we do need the two in tandem, don't we? We need some sort of storage facility uh, because if the supply is cut off temporarily, uh, well, then we're buggered, basically. We we don't see any immediate risk of the supply being cut off. It's just that we don't want it to happen. Uh, So we're doing everything we can to make sure that it doesn't happen. Uh, But we don't see any particular risk of that, except that the markets are volatile. Mm. And the more that we can do at EU level to reduce that volatility and instability in the markets, uh, the more the, the more it helps our security of supply. But yes, that, that includes the carbon gas field, that includes our own energy storage, but it also includes getting more wind up and, and solar, really, as, as soon as we can too. Okay. Uh, the 27 leaders are, are, are meeting. I think there was some expectation here that the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, would uh, have been discussed, but uh, the Taoiseach made it very clear in the Dáil this week that that wasn't on the agenda. Has there been any talk uh, amongst uh, those attending about the next steps? Yeah, yeah, we talk about it all the time. And I mean, Sinn Féin, I'm surprised that Sinn Féin raised this in the Dáil because up to now there's been complete unity on the issue of the protocol. I mean, the protocol is not on the agenda this week because A, the UK is not a member of the EU, so they're not at the mm. table. Uh, B, um, the, nego- the EU member states are completely united in terms mm. of negotiating position with the, with the, with the UK. So, so the Commission are negotiating on behalf of all the member states. And if, I mean, the reason it would be at the European Council would be if there was a difficulty or perhaps a conclusion. Mm. Um, so, so, so that's why. But quite frankly, people are talking to us about and we're talking to them all the time about the protocol. Um, I had lo- um, maybe half a dozen meetings uh, in Luxembourg on Tuesday uh, about this, um, various phone calls yesterday uh, in Dublin. Uh, and indeed, at the European Council as well, uh, I've had further, I've had further discussions, and I've no doubt that Tisha has had discussions with his fellow leaders when he mm. gets into the room as well uh, about that situation. So mm. this is happening all the time. Yeah. But at the moment, what's happening is that the Commission are in negotiations with the UK directly. Those talks actually are still happening this week, mm. um, but we we, we 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 don't have a huge amount. Uh, to report at the moment, I suppose. Sure. Exactly. And, 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 and energy topping the uh, agenda because yeah. of the war uh, and the war and the refugee crisis very much on the agenda, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Minister, but that, that crisis uh, is uh, causing some concern here today uh, because uh, we're hearing uh, from Minister Roderick O'Gorman uh, that the state may not be in a position to offer refuge or accommodation to people seeking refuge in this country. Look, I can't comment on that beyond what Minister Gorman said, except that uh, I know for a fact that the government is doing a huge amount now this morning and today to make sure that we can provide that accommodation to search for absolutely everything that we have um, to, to, to provide and to, to, to give shelter to people. I mean, and, and quite frankly, it's going to be 
um, I would have thought not 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 optimal uh, housing or anything like that because we don't have it. Uh, but we are obliged to give people shelter, and what we've seen in Poland, Bulgaria, is something that we didn't we don't want to see here, uh, which is maybe community halls, etc. Um, you know, on a, on a medium-term basis, that's very, very tough for people. But the reality is at the moment, and Zelensky dialed into the meeting yesterday and spoke to all the leaders, is that Russia now is currently blowing up all their energy infrastructure at the moment, one by one. Um, and that's really, really dangerous. So we have our energy problems, but we're coming to a situation where you, Ukraine, a country of I think, 40 million people, um, may not have any electricity um, in, in, in the next while if, if, if Russia keeps uh, continuing with this. And it is off the Russian playbook that we've seen before uh, in other places such as Chechnya yeah. uh, and, and Ossetia. So, so this is really, really difficult and it's certainly going to cause uh, another wave uh, in the migration crisis. And there is no doubt uh, that not just Ireland, but that all countries will be stretched to our limits yeah. uh, in helping the Ukrainian people as we're obliged to do. Yeah, I see there's a concern about uh, a dam and uh, the risk. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, he, he, yeah, he outlined yeah. that in detail to the leaders last night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Minister, thank you indeed uh, for joining us from Brussels this morning. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you, as I say. That's uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, who's a Fianna Fáil TD from Mid East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you heard uh, yesterday, the Living Wage uh, Technical Group has adjusted uh, the rate that people should earn to live to a minimum standard in this country to €13.85 an hour. That's the new living wage, as it's called. Uh, You may be in receipt of the living wage, or you may not be. Uh, Interesting to see that the German supermarket chain Lidl has already committed to paying all of its staff at least the minimum wage of €13.85 an hour. It's the equivalent of 540 a week or €28,160 a year. And what does it mean? Well, it means you'd be able to afford some of uh, the basic fundamentals in life, that you'd be able to shop for your food, your clothes, you'd afford healthcare, household goods, transport and insurance and anything else you can think of and perhaps put away a couple of bob a week. Uh, nothing too dramatic, just a basic standard of living, a living wage, 13.85 an hour. Now, Michael Taft is a, a member of the Living Wage Technical Group. He's a researcher with SIP2 and he joins us now. And a very good morning to you once again, Michael Taft, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Perhaps uh, you tell us a little bit more about how you come uh, to the estimated uh, rate that you say people need to earn because you look at all of these things and it, it varies around the country. For example, if you look at housing, you're saying people need 200. This is a, an adult uh, who is employed full-time, living alone without any dependence. Uh, an adult needs €290 Euro to afford housing in Dublin, but that drops to 114 in rural areas. That's correct. What we've done is uh, we divide uh, the country into four main groupings. First off is Dublin. Uh, The next up is the major urban areas outside of Dublin, which would be Galway, Limerick, uh, Cork, Waterford, then towns, and then the rural area. And what we do then, when we we do all the calculations, you know, for food, clothing, as you mentioned, housing, 
transport, and we um, then uh, uh, you know meld them all together into a single single figure uh, because uh, the you know the the Irish labour market uh, usually reflects a single figure regardless of where you live. Uh, so that when we do that, we come up with a figure of thirteen eighty five. Now, obviously, there are going to be variations. Actually, there are not too many variations in the regions save for housing. That is the big one. Another big one, actually, is transport, because in the main urban areas in Dublin, people can rely on public transport, which is much cheaper. But if you're living in the towns, you know, below, uh, below a size of, say, 10,000, or in the rural areas, you do need a car. So therefore, the trans- whereas housing is cheaper in those areas, transport goes up. So those are the kind of balances we make. But really, on all the other categories, they're, they're pretty much the same. If you take food or if you take clothing, they're similar across the four. So those mm. are the two main outliers for the different areas. Okay, and you have a, a different gross salary uh, that uh, you say would be necessary for people to live uh, to a, a basic minimum standard across the four areas. Tell us uh, about the difference uh, between Dublin, the cities, the towns, and people living in the countryside. Well, the gross salary merely reflects what you would need in your expenditure. For instance, in Dublin, the minimum essential uh, standard of living uh, for the week would be about 530 euros. But in the rural areas, it would be 420. So therefore, your salary is not going to need to be as high in the rural areas as it is in the urban areas. And that's the difference that reflects it. So a gross salary of 640 euros a week in Dublin, mm-hmm. will for a single person uh, will uh, give them the uh, living wage. Four hundred and eighty in the rural areas uh, will give them a living wage. So that that's the, that's the differences. And as I say, really the biggest uh, yeah. differences are housing and transport. Yeah, but well, I was just going to say, uh, undoubtedly, housing uh, is uh, the big uh, reason, the reason why you need more money uh, living in Dublin and bigger towns, uh, and transport then the reason why you need more money living in rural areas. That's correct. I mean, the, you know, that, that, that is the case. Uh, uh, and therefore, when we come to do these calculations, they are actually based. They're not, they're, they're, they're not based on a group of people who are deciding what amount of money is needed in each category, uh, whether that be in education, transport, personal mm-hmm. care. What is done is there's a focus group of, uh, uh, of uh, people that it's in, employed throughout the different regions, uh, uh, different parts of the country, and different uh, household characteristics. So uh, we produce uh, uh, figures for a single person, but we also collect data for uh, uh, large uh, families. So they actually tell us what they believe uh, is uh, essential for living. And then we take that, uh, you know, calculate all, all that up, divide it in those four regions. Mm. And then, you know, that's done every three to five years. And then we just inflation rate it uh, uh, for, um, uh, you know, in those years that we haven't done the focus groups. So actually, mm-hmm. it's people uh, telling us 
what they believe an, uh, an essential standard of living is. It's not a, uh, it's not some kind of algorithm uh, or averaging out of, you know, yeah. national averages or anything like that. Well, okay, but I, I take it that there's uh, situations where one thing feeds into a, another and if you can walk out of your apartment down to the shop and buy your groceries, it's cheaper to buy your groceries. At, le- at least this is what I was assuming. I was very curious looking at, at the cost of food across the four different Areas and you're estimating that in Dublin you'd spend forty eight sixty five a week on food as a single adult, and that goes up to forty nine forty six in rural areas. Is that because you'd have to drive to the shop? No, no. The driving to the shop would be caught in the transport. That's just the difference. That's just the variations of food. Oh. That variation, by the way, is is, is quite minimal. Uh, I mean, it's pretty mm-hmm. much forty eight, uh, except for a, a, a euro extra. And that course could occur if they are buying items which have to be uh, brought in, you know, from a much further distance than say Dublin. So that would reflect the transport costs within transporting the food to the different areas, uh, say out to you know, the stretches of Donegal or out to the southern parts of Kerry, as opposed to uh, a larger market, bringing food to a larger market, more concentrated market in Dublin. But to be honest, the the difference is marginal. Okay. Um, It's not exactly a huge salary either, is it? Uh, It sounds big on the face of it. And there's a lot of people who will be listening this morning saying, I wish I was earning that much. Uh, But on the other hand, Uh, You estimate that at the end of the week, uh, this is for somebody who's full-time employed, that they'd be able to save a tenner. That's right. It's not much, excuse me, it is not, uh, uh, as you say, it's really the minimal that you need for an adequate uh, living standard. That's why it's called a minimum essential standard of living. So, uh, you, for instance, uh, in terms of social inclusion and participation, uh, you, there's no alcohol factored in this. So this doesn't count the odd glass of pint or a glass of wine or a gin and tonic, uh, maybe even just one a week mm. at the end of the week. doesn't, of course, count cigarettes. Uh, so it really is what you need, essential, you know, essential uh, uh, for an essential uh, living standard. And we do calculate 10 euros, I mean, because people do have to put aside some money a week in case of an unexpected expense that comes along. Uh, uh, But, you know, 10 euros a week is not very much. No, it's scraping by, to say the least. All right, Michael, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. That's uh, Michael Taft, who's a researcher with the SIP2 Trade Union and a member of the Living Wage Technical Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Independent is uh, reporting uh, this morning uh, that uh, the latest report on smoking prevalence from uh, the Department of Health's Tobacco-Free Ireland section says it plans to promote a smoking ban in certain parks and beaches. Uh, They say they'll do this with uh, the cooperation of local authorities. Let's speak uh, to Gerry O'Connor, who's a Fine Gael councillor on Meath County Council and a smoker, it has to be said. Gerry O'Connor, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, Do you think uh, that this uh, will go down well with councillors? Good morning, Michael. Uh, I don't know. I mean, councillors will take directions from the departments and uh, I can see the, the logic behind it to a certain extent. I, I, I think it's impractical that how you'd actually manage it. 
Uh, and like the smoking ban is in is 18 years now. Uh, and what we've seen uh, in the last few years, even with COVID, is that initially there was smoking areas provided outside eating uh, establishments and pubs. And then during COVID, they became eating places and bit by bit, the smokers are pushed further and further away. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a health issue, uh, I understand. But to me, I think we have bigger health issues that the, 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 the department should be concentrating on in relation to the backlog of appointments for, 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 for necessary uh, uh, illnesses and, and, tro- and trolley counts. Mm, is, it the and, so, is it the sort of measure, though, that might uh, encourage you to give up? I think most people start smoking uh, when they're young and give up when they're older. Uh, you did things in reverse, apparently. I did it in reverse. Yeah. I started right. smoking when I was 39. I'm 63 now. and probably in the interim. I've not smoked about 10 years. I've had several times where I've not mm. given them up. What made you take them up to 39? <laughs> I know it's a strange one. Well, my my wife always smoked. Right. Uh, my dad, my dad smoked, and, my, and I know the the the, the, the consequences of smoke. My father died in nineteen eighty three of, of of lung cancer, and he was a smoker. Uh, so I told I just it was a simple thing. I was on holidays. I I, I used to like an odd cigar if I was having a, a meal and a drink, and uh, I couldn't get the cigars. Uh, so I, I bought a pack of cigarettes, mm. and I kind of got into the habit, and I found. I, I can give them up if, if, if I want to give them up. Uh, but I do find them, you know, they do help with stress, I, from my own personal mm. opinion. Mm. Uh, but I do find that, that, that I am very conscious uh, where I smoke. And if there's children around or if I'm outdoor areas, I will, I will go and seek the designated place where you can smoke. Yeah. And I see mm. no, no, no problem with that. And I think if we, if, you know, if we have a designated smoking area in a park mm. or, or, or on a beach, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Are, 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 the they banned day, in, are, are they banned in playgrounds? It's a while since I've been in a playground. Yeah, they are. And rightly so. And they're banned in most schools in, in Kentamead. And, and, and rightly so. And, mm. But but it's funny, uh, you know, if you go to Brussels, it's the European Parliament, uh, right beside a, a, an eating area, there's a, a room that you, you, you need uh, goggles to go in. Mm. With, with smoking, so we we yeah. we've obviously led the line. In well, it. I remember every pub in the country used to be like that at one time, and, and, and every bus in the country used to be like that, and every cinema in the country it's, used to be like that. That's probably why I never smoked when I was younger, because yeah. I walked part time there, and it was probably a passive smoke and didn't realise it. But 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 um, if you if you can take them or, or leave them, I take it this sort of ban wouldn't bother you. You wouldn't be going mad in the head because you'd be on the beach and not able to smoke. No, not at all. Uh, like it, it, that's it, it, I, I smoke by choice, Mike. Mm. Uh, because I actually enjoy a cigarette, uh, it's 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 one of my only uh, uh, outlets that, 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 that you know mm. that I actually enjoy. Uh, I I fully support the ban of sale of cigarettes and vapes. Mm. Vapes are more, more more worrying for me for young people because they yeah. now become a fashion a fashion item. And what what uh, did you say? It was eighteen years ago when the ban was introduced here. Because uh, I didn't know it was how long ago it was, but I it remember was eighteen years. Yeah, with yeah. Michal Martin was the minister for health. Oh yeah, and it was and, and it was a good thing. Yeah, I remember it very well though, uh, because uh, at the time everybody was saying, "Sure, nobody's going to comply." And then, lo and behold, everybody complied. Hey, you'd imagine it would be the same with the parks and the beaches. Uh, I think we learned a lesson from that. When you tell people it's illegal, the majority of people comply. I think they will. And, and, and uh, I just, I, I, enforcement is where, where, where I think it will, 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 be, will be difficult. Mm. Uh, and, and, and again, I think there should be greater but, uh, priorities but, uh, for ministers. But people enforce it, don't they? I mean, there's very little enforcement in, in pubs uh, uh, or restaurants or, or the like uh, now because of the workplace ban. People just don't smoke. And if somebody lights up a cigarette, everybody will say to them, what do you, what do you think you're doing? Of course they will. Yeah. Of course mm. they will. 
Uh, and and you, you then you have to look at two. Uh, I mean, there is a huge proportion. I know the percentage has gone up that people are smoking since uh, since mm. COVID. And I can understand that because people had more downtime. It was nine months that the whole country was mm. locked down. And so they were at home. And, and you, uh, yes, it, it could go up. But if you look at what's happening in the budget, another 50 cents a ton on the pack of cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, it's getting to a stage where, you know, I, I found my own way. I, I've actually cut down uh, mm. dramatically. I'm down to 10 cigarettes a day. Uh, and I, I do that by a very novel method. Yeah. My, mo- my mother died and, in, in December oh, 2020, oh, okay. and I found when I was clearing out the house a cigarette uh, box, mm. a metal cigarette box that only right. holds 10 cigarettes. So that's why, that's my, that's how okay. I, I manage that. Okay, and condolences to you as well. But uh, yeah. I, I'm sure you know, as somebody who has given up uh, a few times, uh, that when you're you're trying to give up cigarettes, uh, if you see somebody smoking or if you smell a cigarette. Uh, you really get the urge and the longing for a cigarette that might make you go out and buy one. So this could be very good in that sense, in that you don't see cigarettes. You won't be tempted to start or to uh, take up the habit again. Yes, yes, it will for some people. But you've got to, it's, you know, and I understand the minister saying that, you know, we want to have a smoke free Ireland. But it is choice. Mm. It's personal choice. We're not yeah. in any state. And, and people will smoke by choice. Mm. Uh, and it is a certain age cohort uh, who, who who will smoke. But I think people are responsible. Smokers, I find, are very responsible. They don't light up in restaurants. They don't light up in pubs. Mm-hmm. They do try to find the area where they can smoke. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I'm not against it. I just mm-hmm. think it's very hard to enforce. And I think we have greater priorities for the Department of Health at the moment than than than, than concentrating on this. Okay, you know that's 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 my own personal choice anyway. Fair enough. Okay, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Finnegall Councillor in Mead, Jerry O'Connor. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Mary Lou MacDonald, uh, Republican riddle by Shane Ross, has received untold publicity. It's predominantly because of an interview about the book uh, that the author, Shane Ross, gave to Claire Byrne on RTE. It wasn't what was said in that interview that has caused such a stir. It's actually because nobody outside of RTE uh, and Shane Ross has heard uh, this interview and it's led to claim and counterclaim. It's uh, an issue that's been raised in the Dáil a number of times by a number of TDs, including the Taoiseach Michal Martin, who has also raised it outside of uh, the Dáil, referring to some of uh, the accusations and allegations that have been made around this story recently at uh, the Wolf Tone commemoration in Bodenstown. It actually led to the Taoiseach having to correct the record of the doll earlier this week as you probably heard the author of uh, this book Shane Ross joins us now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning I, I think it's true to say uh, that you've been driving this controversy uh, because you wrote a- an article about that RTE interview in the Sunday Independent that's right Michael thank you for, for good morning and thank you very much for having me on yeah the, I wasn't a controversy of my making by the way at all it, it, the interview was pulled. Uh, me having having done it about six days before it was due to be broadcast, uh, and it was subject to very severe restrictions on what could be what could be addressed and what couldn't be, which is very very unusual, uh, and, and 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 quite a lot of conditions. Anyway, it was pulled, and that, and that was that. And then the, then all hell really broke broke loose because. Uh, 
RTE, RTE wouldn't even give me a transcript of it afterwards, which was which was quite extraordinary. And, and I think everybody knows what's happened after that. It's it reached the floor of the doyle. It's now going to the issue of RTE censorship and how they make these decisions is now going to go to an Oroctus committee and they're going to be called in to answer for it. Yeah, I've been driving it, I suppose, in a way in that I've responded and I've asked them several times, uh, you know, to, 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 to change their mind and to, and to release the transcript to me because I want to know what's best, what's wrong, what, what, what was wrong in the interview. And they are just saying it's a matter of editorial decision full stop. What I would say is this, and uh, i stop then on this, on this issue, but, but is that no other media outlet, and as you said, it's been an awful lot of publicity attached to it, and that only helps book sales, really. I mean, it's, 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 that's the effect of it. But no other media outlet, and I've been on you, know, I've been, I'm coming on you today, and it applies to you as well, and every, everywhere else, yeah. has put any restrictions on what we talk about, what we say, this recording, this is a live interview. So I can't understand the reasons why RT took this. And Michal Martin was concluding, and he may or may not be right, uh, that the issue is really because they fear legal action and because there are there's a record of uh, of pain, I suppose, as much mm. as anything else, having actions against RT. So they're, they're scared of that. They're terrified. Yeah, right. Uh, well, that was the accusation you made in your column in uh, the Sunday Independent, uh, which yeah. uh, led to the storm, I think, uh, on uh, the Tuesday. Uh, it began on the Tuesday and it's been uh, rumbling on ever since. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, but to, to accuse RTE of interfering in editorial control because of fear of a political party taking legal action on them is a, a very serious accusation. Uh, do you think you'd have had any problem making that accusation in any other newspaper other than the independent group? I think, well, I mean, Michael Martin said it himself in the Doyle, so he didn't do it through, through a newspaper. Um, and I've, I'd have had, I'd, I, I have no problem in saying that, that this has to be a consideration. We're going to wait to see what they actually say. All they've actually said is it's, it's an editorial decision. Mm. Full stop. But my I mean, they may, may have thought the interview was dull as dishwater. <laughs> they, 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 what happened was some some strange uh, RT source said that uh, it wasn't dull as dishwater. You can't. I can assure you, Michael. You can't make Mary Lou Macdonald as dull as dishwater, however hard you try. And even if it was hmm. not as exciting as maybe it should have been, sometimes the subject of marriage, if that's because RT put restrictions, such strict restrictions on what could be talked about in the interview, and was so careful about that, and and the whole atmosphere around. The pre-interview process was was hey listen don't say anything dangerous or too exciting so it was sanitised in a way but it, they then they then they then some of the source said to said to the Irish Times I think it was oh it was I'm sure it was because it was very boring but that was not a trivial attributable anonymous source no one's prepared to come and say that and they're not if they if they just let me have a, a copy of the transcript. Of the interview, okay. which is my own interview. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose uh, <laughs> how interesting it is is subjective, uh, but uh, yeah. it's generated a lot of publicity, uh, and yeah. uh, all publicity is good publicity, and there's no yeah. doubt about that. You're selling uh, a lot of books uh, because uh, you've written a biography, basically, about Mary Lou MacDonald. What inspired Shane Ross to write about Mary Lou MacDonald? Uh, I'd be less surprised if Mary Lou MacDonald wrote Donald Trump's biography. <laughs> No, I, I've written this my, my fifth book, uh, and it struck me that she is easily the most interesting, exciting, uh, groundbreaking politician in Ireland at the moment. 
and she's poised to be, you know, the next Taoiseach. She's poised to be the first woman Taoiseach and to be the first to train Taoiseach as well. And she's very, very interesting because she's broken the mold in lots and lots of ways. She's kind of, you know. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. She's been very, very controversial. She's been very highly criticized. And the reaction I get when I go around, I've been going around the country this week meeting people who just on the street and they say, you know, some people they loathe her and some people they just absolutely adore her. She's, people have very, very strong feelings about Mary Lou. So I wanted to, what, what really inspired me was not just that, but she, there's an awful lot about Mary Lou which isn't known. We know we know the public Mary Lou, we know the, the, the great orator she is in the door, we see the public figure. But what, what, I, what people always refer, refer to her as is, Mary Lou as an enigma, and we, I think it's the same word, I call it a Republican riddle. There's so little known about her, and I want to go on the kind of journey of her life and find out about what she was like, what she's like as a person, what her background was like, what brought some person, you know, from her background mm. to be, to be, to be uh, the leader of Sinn Féin. And that's really the story, and that's okay. really interesting. And, the, and how, how did you go about researching that? Did, did, did you speak to Mary Lou? I spoke to her, well, I know her, I know her quite mm. well, mm. you probably know um, and uh, I, we got elected to join the same day, and we were both in the public council committee, and I, mm. where she was massively effective, and we, we fought the same battles, mm. uh, making making public public uh, officials mostly accountable. Uh, and I don't know very well with her. And we had a very good relationship all that period of time when I was in government, and when she was in opposition. Only nothing. They were very helpful, she think, to me at that, at that period in, mm. in, in in difficult circumstances. But I asked her about the book. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to write this book of you. And she looked a bit perplexed. I met her, I asked her to meet her, and she said, yeah, fine, and we met. Uh, and, and, but she said, I don't know whether I can cooperate with this or not, but I'll come back to you in a week. And she came back a week later, and she said, I'm not going to stand in your way, but I'm not going to help you. What I really was looking for was not to be an authorised biographer. That's the last thing I wanted, because mm. that compromises you. Uh, but I was looking for introductions to her family and stories about her childhood because I want I wanted this to be a personal book. I don't want it to be just about the battles she fought internally in a party or externally in the party because that's not mm. of that is known. What I wanted to know was what a sort of person she was, what her family were like, what about her background and and she said, No, I'm not gonna help you with that. It's premature. Mm. Uh, and we parted we parted as friends. Okay. Uh, but did did, did you send her a copy? Sorry? Did you send her a copy? No, because I haven't sent her a copy, but it's, 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 I'm, I'm actually no doubt whatsoever that she has a copy. She sent an invitation to the launch, mm. and I was going to give her a copy then. Okay. And, you, you haven't had any feedback from Mary Lou MacDonald then, I take no, it? No, I haven't. Okay. I, okay. She hasn't been in touch okay. with me at all mm. about it. Um, uh, and you, you, you write a, a lot, obviously, about her relationship with Jerry uh, Adams. Jerry uh, Adams yeah. didn't help you out in terms of researching it either, did he? No, not at all. He, uh, it's in the book. We had a... I had a very amusing text from him, uh, <laughs> which I'll, I'll leave for readers to find, but to, uh, saying, no, no, he wasn't going to help me out. But that, that was, there was a kind of pattern, Michael, after, after I talked to her, 
I talked to a large number members of Sinn Féin, all of whom I knew because I was in the door with them. Uh, and so they come and talk to me about Mary Lou, and they all said, yeah, well, not all of them said yes, but none of them said no. And then they said they'd come back to me, and they came back. The ones that came back usually cancelled at the last minute, uh, having checked with the press office, and there was a kind of blanket that came down. No, this is not. It was quite obvious. One of them said, this is not a Sinn project. I'm not going to cooperate with it. Having said yes, I'll talk to you, certainly. And that was unfortunately what happened. So what, what happens then is, if you're writing a book about someone as fascinating as, as she is, and she is absolutely fascinating, her background is very interesting, um, is you have to go, go digging somewhere else and ask other people who, who, who you wouldn't normally go, go to. So I talked to some members of her family, I talked to members of Sinn Féin then off the record, and gradually, over, this took a year and a bit, gradually a large number of people who know her well talk to me. You know, people who are mm-hmm. with her, Trinity, with her, people in the party, uh, members, members of, former members of the IRA, everybody... I got lots and lots of people to talk, but most of them off the record because the, the official line was it's not a Shinsane project. And I'm better off there that way because it's more objective as a result, I think. Mm, you believe that uh, she will end up Taoiseach. Uh, I think there's I a, a general assumption that Mary Lou MacDonald uh, will continue yeah. to lead Sinn Féin and into mm-hmm. government and to become the next Taoiseach. Would you like to see Mary Lou become Taoiseach? Would you like to see Sinn Féin as the main party in government? Well, I don't think I've ever voted for Sinn Féin. But uh, what, 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 I, what I say is this, I don't have the kind of fear that some people in my generation have. I don't have this kind of fear that there's, there's suddenly there's going to be, that they're front people for a kind of armed insurrection in the background. I think there are, there are forces there who were there, you know, 25 years ago when the, when, the, when the battle was going on and when the IRA was fighting and they're still in the party. And that you've got to, you've got to recognize. But the idea that there's some sort of sinister... Uh, armed background behind them, what they're doing democratically in North and South is fading very, very fast. And you know, Mail is, 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 is clever and she is, she is fighting all elections virtually on two things. And mainly it's housing and, and housing and health. And the border comes in, of course, mm. as an issue. Mm. But it's in a very democratic way. But it's not an issue which is, which is top of her list, you know. So we've got to be, be careful about what we say. We, we must be aware of the past. And where are the people who are still there who, 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 who've done terrible things mm. in the past? But also, take it for granted there's new generation of Sinn Féin who, are, who have nothing to do with it. Okay. Uh, it wasn't part of the motivation for writing the book uh, to uh, <laughs> diminish her popularity no. uh, because no, uh, it's... Uh, it, it, I mean, yeah. uh, there's certain aspects uh, uh, to... Um, the story that you tell uh, about a, a silver-spooned child going to private school uh, who flipped politically when she finally found her political feet uh, yeah. to have a, a relationship with the hard men I- I- in the IRA uh, and so on. And coming from Shane Ross, uh, I think some people might be forgiven for thinking uh, that this was a, a, an effort uh, to diminish that popularity. Uh, and then uh, the publicity that uh, it has received has resulted in what Sinn Féin is describing as a slur in Sinn Féin. I haven't heard that. I haven't heard them say that. I must say, I don't, I don't think Sinn Féin has actually officially responded at all. That she, that Sinn, well, well, Ono Bren was talking uh, uh, about uh, the idea that Sinn Féin uh, is funding legal actions against media outlets. Yeah, well, uh, and said, said, uh, well he said they're not, and that's a slur. Sorry, I'm not saying Sinn Féin is, is taking taking action, is funding actions. I don't know who funds them, actually, to be honest, but they are taking actions against media. The, the members are, a lot of them. And I think it's fair to 
ask the effect of that. I think that's a fair question. This is absolutely no... I say in the very first paragraph, mm. uh, no, first, first chapter, this is no attempt to help or hinder or to torpedo Sinn Féin one way or the other. It's an, an, it's an attempt to tell the story of a woman who has a very interesting background, who ends up in a very unlikely mm. place and how she got there. Okay. Her journey, her and, journey, is really mysterious in some ways and really interesting in others. Her journey from this from, from, from middle-class Dublin uh, to being head of Sinn Féin is pretty well unique. Mm. And, and that, is, that is a story worth telling and to tell how she did it and the machinations that went on. And it's very critical in places, but it's very positive as well. Mm. Very positive about her, her time in the Doyle, about her time when I served with her on the PAC, she was superb. She was mm. absolutely without parallel in her ability to forensically examine people like the Garda Commissioner. So mm. it's, it's, it's balanced. I know some people on both sides when, when you say you're balanced, people are both, both into the coin take offence, yeah. which is probably not a bad thing, but certainly there was no intention to torpedo it, and I wouldn't be able to do that. Okay, uh, for, for the sake of transparency, I uh, have to uh, declare, if you like, uh, that this programme has uh, received letters from solicitors on behalf mm-hmm. of Gerry Adams and on a, yeah. a, a number of occasions. Uh, mm-hmm. But if somebody has a, a problem with uh, the broadcaster or what is being published, uh, they have a, a right to take a, a legal action, uh, and then that is adjudicated on. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, essentially, is there? No, but I, there's absolutely nothing wrong. And I heard Pierre Stoughty say the other day, he said, I think it was on RT, where he, where he said, look, we, we may have taken legal actions, but we are going to take legal actions when, in order to clear our name, we're entitled to our good reputations. He's absolutely right about that. What, what, what I'm looking at here is saying, is the effect of this to actually spook RTE? And that's something that we should look at. And it's a problem with RTE if they can't, if they don't have enough confidence to be able to say we're going to be able to produce more uh, objective programs. It didn't spook. It didn't spook Shane Ross, did it? <laughs> You're not spooked that you gave an interview that was dull as dishwater by any chance. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they are obviously spooked because nobody else is. Right? <laughs> uh, they're the only one. They're the only one responding this way, and that's out of mm. out of thousands of media. Mm. Uh, they're the only one responding that way, and that presumably is. And it it it, it may be unfair to assume it, but it's fair. It's fair to. <laughs> to conclude that maybe there's a, a link between the fact that they, they've got a lot of risks from members of Sinn Féin or, or, uh, and the fact that uh, and, the, and the fact they're being very, very careful and, 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 and spiking interviews. Okay. We have to leave there for the moment, uh, but uh, I'm sure people will be very interested. Uh, as you say, most people know uh, about your biography at this stage. It's called Mary Lou MacDonald. Michael, can I just say I'm signing books? Can I just say what oh, I'm yeah, signing? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Would that be right? Thank yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm signing books in, in, in Drogheda and Waterstones at 10.15 on Tuesday and at 12.30 in Dundalk, in Eastlands of Dundalk, at 12.30. Okay. All right. Sorry for interrupting there. No, no, no. no. I'm sure. I'm sure people will be uh, delighted to meet you and get a copy of the book. Uh, there's a lot of interest in it. Obviously, Mary Lou Macdonald, uh, Republican Riddle by Shane Ross. Shane Ross, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning on the program. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us uh, today, if I can. John in Navan was in touch with us to say that he and his wife are just back from the post office in Navan. They can't believe it because they were just given over a thousand euro in crisp notes. 
votes as part of the government's double pension payment. John says, I can't believe it. <laughs> I'm wondering, though, if the government has gone a bit mad. He thinks Santa has come a bit early. Paddy Duffy in touch with us saying, bring back Boris as Prime Minister with the Jacob Rees-Mogg as Chancellor of the Exchequer and uh, Nadine Derry's as Foreign Secretary and get the waste of space off uh, the air uh, thank you indeed, Paddy. Eric Cuthbert says, I hate smoking. I hate smoke, but I, I think it's going too far to ban outdoor smoking on beaches and in parks. Free choices, the cornerstone stone of democracy. Somebody else saying, I, I think the council should concentrate on dog litter and loose dogs running wild all over our beaches. It's disgusting, but you see the council truck going up and down the beaches, turning a blind eye while my grandchildren play. Uh, another text. Uh, from somebody who says we have lots of laws on dog fouling littering etc but no one there to enforce them if we think people will stop smoking on beaches and parks we're mistaken we see a lack of respect for the environment everywhere with littering thank you indeed uh, for that Uh, somebody else saying 48 uh, euro a week for food for a single person this is not right you'd need at least double that that's Tom in Navin Uh, James in Ukraine says in relation to the people coming from Ukraine uh, overpowering our accommodation system Austria has now stopped refugees coming into the country uh, it's certainly uh, a real problem because it looks as though there's going to be a struggle to find accommodation James thank you though to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Let's uh, take up on uh, that text uh, from Tom in Navin. He said, 48 euro a week for food for a single person. Uh, you must be joking. You'd need double that. Uh, well, as Michael Taft, a member of the Living Wage Technical Group, told us uh, it's around 48, 49 euro for a single person. Uh, and uh, I thought we would take up on it uh, because uh, they look at uh, the cost of issues or items like food or clothing, personal care, health and so on. This long list uh, as you go down uh, through uh, all of the different things to come up with this living wage of 1385. But uh, if you take food, for example, uh, for that single person, it's uh, 48.49 euro. Uh, but that rises to 250 euro for a two parent family and four children. So that's six people. Uh, And you'd imagine it would be much more than the 250. I mean, six times 50 is 300 euro. But they're saying about 250 is all that's needed. Let's speak to another member of uh, that technical group, Father Sean Healy, who is uh, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. A very good morning to you, Sean. And thank you indeed. Good to be here. Uh, Why is it uh, that it costs less if there are more people, if you like, per person? Well, I I think the... The, the way the figures are done, they're actually measured by going in yeah, with, with focus groups, very substantial numbers of people in them uh, across the whole kind of income spread. And they actually are the people who are setting these numbers. Right, like right. We're not the people who are setting the numbers. We go, what we do is check the cost of this, okay? Mm. And that's why sometimes you get anomalies or things that look like anomalies, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and um, we're not saying, for example, at all, that the living wage gives you any kind of leeway to go beyond a minimally 
if essential, essential mm. standard of living. Yeah, I know, like, yeah. I mean, you're talking about at the end of the week for a single person having a, a tenner to save. Sure, I, yeah. I, I could offer an explanation on the food, uh, which could be that bulk buying is always cheaper. And if you take, like, a bag of potatoes, for example, uh-huh. if you buy a small bag of potatoes, uh, it'll cost, uh, in terms of per potato, uh, far more than if you buy a big bag of potatoes. correct. But yeah. a single person isn't going to buy the big bag of potatoes because they'll go off before they get to use them. That's correct, yeah. And that, the, the, rea- the reality, of course, is that, that if you have a large number of people in the household, then you have a lot of, uh, you, yeah. you have a capacity here. The, the other thing that you have to think about is that an awful lot of people uh, on this very low income um, who are currently below it are actually living in households with others. They're not, they, there isn't enough in, if you don't have a, a, the living wage level of income, then you're in a space where it's difficult to actually live on your own. You have to be basically living with other people to be sort of to get, get, being able to accumulate enough income to provide a minimally effective standard of, or essential, sorry, minimum effective, mm. uh, sorry, a minimum essential standard of living. That's what it's called. And uh, that's what, that's what the work that was the, the Vincentian Partnership has been doing for quite a number of years now. And we've been counting this number since 2014 and then basically tracking its development and so on. But, and the big the problem that's, that's jumping out very clear, clearly is, is that it's housing costs yeah. that are driving up uh, the actual uh, living wage mm. amount. That we, if, if we didn't have uh, that housing cost at all, if, if just for talk's sake you were to say the, 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 the housing cost was zero mm. increase, then you'd have a situation in some some in, in a few years, mm. in, in a number of years in the past uh, decade, where the actual living wage uh, might never risen at all, yeah. or, it might, it, or, or even mm. it might have gone down because uh, other pri- other costs went down. Now now we're in a different situation now, right? Everything is going up. The cost of living is going through the roof. So in that sense, uh, there's much chance that it will go down at this stage. Yeah, and it's Um, interesting as well. It's very expensive uh, to be single, uh, living uh, alone in this country. Uh, uh, And not just for the bag of potatoes, if you like. You talk about housing. A single person uh, living uh, alone would need €114.90 in rural Ireland. The six people in rural Ireland would need €154. Then when you come to energy, it's almost double uh, the price for the six children or for the six people compared to the single person. €36 for a single person compared to €62 uh, for a two-parent family with four children. Uh, that, that's it. And if you take take go back to the housing one for a second, like mm. if you take the situation there, like to li- uh, the cost in a city of uh, accommodation, particularly Dublin, is like two and a half times what it would be in rural Ireland, for example. Uh, on the other side, then uh, the transport cost is higher in rural Ireland because the car is essential once you're away from any any kind of transport uh, possibilities. Where you're, if you're out of the way, you can't. If you're not on a main bus route or something, uh, there's no way you can survive without. Uh, uh, some kind of car mm. uh, usually not a very good one but anyway that's bad for the environment and all these things but people have to be able to move around uh, so in that sense you get this kind of difference between urban and rural now in, in reality over the period they, they, they kind of they don't quite level out but they go close to leveling out and, uh, and in, in reality then the, the, the living wage rate is set at 13.85 an hour and then do that for a, for a 35, 39 hour week is the, is the basic mm. that is 
it's seen as, you know. So this is basically the minimum standard of living that a working person should expect. It's the minimum that they should be entitled to. So you said two things there, Michael, that it's very important to distinguish. entitled to, yeah. The minimum they should be entitled to. But in actual fact, you'd expect and hope that they would get a bit more because they have so much, so little money left at the end of the week in this process that we're doing. We're doing the minimum, okay? Basically, why are we doing the minimum? Because there's an awful lot of working poor people who aren't getting the minimum. So what we're trying to say is the minimum, there is minimum wage legislation there since um, uh, Goodman, uh, Jed Nash, uh, within your own uh, reach there in in your radio station, he was the guy when he was minister uh, back in 2015, introduced the minimum wage and set up the minimum wage commission and so on. And I think that's very good uh, that 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 was done. But there's still quite a way to go Mm. before we get everybody into that The the, the minimum wage commission, uh, I think the minimum wage was actually introduced in uh, 2002. Right, yeah, yeah, but the commission wasn't yeah, the set commission. up. There yeah. was a minimum wage, but the commission but, wasn't set up. But what does it say about the commission? What does it say about them? Because the commission set the minimum wage. What does it say about them? What does it say about the minimum wage itself? Uh, and what does it say about people's ability to cope, to get okay. by day to day? Because, uh, I mean, you have to applaud places like Legal, which was first uh, out uh, to say that they'll be paying people this living wage, 1385 uh, uh, an hour, which is the equivalent of more than 28,000 a year. And I, I think, like, it says an awful lot that isn't very positive about a society that has a substantial number of people uh, living uh, with incomes below this, which means, in effect, they don't have enough income to provide a minimum essential standard of living. Now, what happens in reality there is start, people start doing without, but as people are beginning to realize, with the, a lot, very clearly, an awful lot of people beginning to realize, or well, maybe, and I don't mean beginning, like they're well aware of it, the fact that uh, the costs now are such uh, that you have to choose a lot of times if you don't have the income in the first place. So the minimum wage has been too low for quite a while, and uh, it probably was always be too low, but it is moving too slowly towards what it should be, which is the living wage that we have said to government. Now, government has kind of said we will take aboard the living wage, but they're defining it differently, and they're not connecting what they're proposing, what the Taunishta has been proposing, is not linked uh, to the actual cost of the goods out there. It's basically just a percentage of the overall uh, wage and so on. Now, that's uh, that's that's easier to calculate, uh, but it's not a guarantee that you're getting enough uh, to live life with dignity at all. And you certainly aren't going to get anything remotely close to having a surplus of any of any size. Even the figures that mm. uh, the has been talking about he's been projecting them out to 2025 yeah. mm-hmm. and I think I think that's a bit much given that nobody has the remotest idea really yeah. what inflation might look like next year or the following yeah, year God forbid and uh, exactly. we, we haven't even got around to comparing it uh, to welfare rates uh, but I think enough said for the moment thank you indeed for joining us and talking to us as always Father Sean Healy is uh, the Director of Social Justice Ireland Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard our discussion uh, with Susan Lohan of uh, the Adoption Rights Alliance and uh, Social Democrat Holly Kearns. Uh, We said on the programme yesterday, we play more of Holly Kearns' speech to the doll uh, on Wednesday for you on the programme today. So let's do that now. Uh, Mary Harney, a survivor who will be familiar to many, one of the women the Commission of Investigation wrongly denied her statutory right 
to comment on the draft findings once said, I'm not a survivor, I'm a small yet mighty resistant worker for justice. She has had to spend much of her life fighting for her rights, for her identity, for justice. Unfortunately, this government, like its predecessors, is continuing to force people like Mary to fight in the courts. Thousands of survivors are excluded from the government scheme. Many of them will never receive redress or recognition if the minister has his way. Nothing for the life-destroying crime of forced family separation. Nothing for those boarded out to abusive homes. Nothing for those who pharmaceutical companies have profited off of. Others will be given as little as €5,000 for a lifetime of trauma. You would get multiples of that for a whiplash injury. It is truly despicable. I actually thought that the six-month criteria was a red herring to distract all of opposition from the ridiculously low rates that other survivors get. I thought you would go back on that. And that's not the case. Holly Kearns was also talking about what has not just shocked people here, but uh, across uh, the world and uh, the discoveries, the horrible discoveries made in tune. You said you wanted to pay tribute to survivors and that nothing can ever actually truly undo the damage caused. But by ensuring that the remains of the children buried at tomb receive a respectful reburial and by bringing forward a payment scheme that will benefit 34,000 residents, that you are humbly acknowledging the state's duty. If you were humbly acknowledging the sta- your state's duty, you'd have to reword that to ensuring that the remains of the children in all known burial sites around the country would receive a respectful reburial, and by bringing forward a payment scheme that would benefit all former residents. That would humbly acknowledge the state responsibility to some extent. Minister, you are being disingenuous given the incredible, serious and personal nature of this topic, and that is unforgivable. You claim you have listened. That is blatantly untrue. Survivors participated in your consultation. They rightly called for a scheme recognising all survivors. They know how others have suffered. They know the evil of a system that separates them into different categories. The casual manner in which you disregard their wishes is sickening. Minister, you also proudly say you have gone beyond the Commission's recommendation, as if this is an admirable thing. We know the Commission's recommendations were arbitrary and inconsistent with testimony given, not to mind all those excluded from the investigation in the first place. Any scheme based on these recommendations is equally distortive and defective. Social Democrat TD Holly Kearns. Some very strong criticism there and a very strong speech. Now, if uh, you were listening to us earlier this morning, you'd have heard how former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern was in front of uh, the Good Friday Agreement Committee yesterday. Some interesting things to say about the work that's going on now. I wish everybody involved today very well. The two governments and the parties. I don't envy them the task they have. But I hope as an old-timer I can be allowed a few words of general advice and to put it no stronger than that. It seems clear to me that as we approach the 25th anniversary of the agreement, we use the opportunity to remind ourselves why it was necessary in the first place and the principles that lay at its heart. That means focusing on continuing its work, building and strengthening its institutions, redoubling our efforts on reconciliation 
and mobilising the support of new generations around its promise. Above all, I suggest, Cahillac and colleagues, we must continue to focus on the agreement's core value, the respect for and accommodation of difference. Shortly before his sad death in January 2020, Seamus Mallon published his fine memoir entitled Shared Home Place. And those were his words to describe that principle that he and John Hume had been promoting for decades, that the only way forward is in solutions that work for everybody. That was the spirit at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement, and it's clear to me that it must be the spirit at the heart of how current difficulties were resolved, whether one is talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol, the restoration of the Executive and Assembly, legacy, or the range of other challenges that we face. They will require leadership by everyone, it will require risk-taking by everybody, and it will involve compromise. But just like my generation was able to do nearly a quarter of a century ago, I feel sure that the leaders today will be able to rise to that challenge. I said at the outset that the Good Friday Agreement was a living charter, and more importantly, it remains the settled will of the people of Northern Ireland as expressed in that referendum of 1998. I full confidence that those two realities mean that we can all face the future with confidence guided by the principles and spirits agreed nearly 25 years ago and which remain our enduring compass points. All right, and uh, what about a, a border poll? There's been a, a lot of talk about a, a border poll and the former Taoiseach, Bertie Hearn, was asked about that at this meeting yesterday. And he said before a poll is held, an awful lot of work needs to be done. Uh, and uh, he talked in particular uh, about joint-up services, things like uh, the NHS and the HSE and how you would combine the services that are provided north and south and that all of that work uh, in preparing for a border poll would have to happen before one took place. To go out and have an election and say, we, well, we don't know how we're going to deal with the National Health Service between... Um, the north and the south. We're, we don't know how we're going to bring together the guard. We don't know how to bring the courts. I mean, I'll tell you what the result of the election will be now, and I won't charge anything for the advice. I wouldn't have a hope in hell of passing. Now, there are some people who think it would. I don't think it would because you'd have a debate, you'd be here debating it, and sure, people after a few days would see that, 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 that it's, a, it's a lo- illogical to do that. Interesting stuff from Bertie Ahern. Michael Reed on LMFM. Can I say, just if I can first make a point if, uh, in response to Deputy Ray, that I think the people of this country have shown remarkable strength of character and lived up, I always think, of the, that Bible story of the Samaritan not passing and actually providing shelter and support for those who are in real, most dramatic need. And the people of our country have done that, I think, in Kerry, in Donegal, in Clare, right the way around the country. And I think Minister Gorman and his team have done the most incredibly difficult job in terms of, is it some 58,000 people now from Ukraine and often 12,500 people, I think, from international protection, which was way beyond. It's, almost, it's, it's like an Aviva stadium has arrived full and we've had to house people. And that is at a really critical point. No one should underestimate the scale of the challenge and the difficult decisions we're going to have to make now to continue that approach, which is the right approach. I think we all agree. Uh, but it's but going to be challenging. It certainly is. Uh, the challenge probably greater than uh, the leader of uh, the Green Party, Minister Raymond Ryan, realised when he was speaking there in the Dáil yesterday uh, about providing shelter to those who are in the most dramatic circumstances of need. 
uh, because uh, there may not be shelter. That's uh, what uh, his party colleague, uh, the Minister for Children, Roger O'Gorman, has said today. Uh, it may not be possible to guarantee accommodation for Ukrainian refugees or people seeking international protection in this country from elsewhere. Let's speak uh, to Yvonne Judge, who's the communications spokesperson with the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. Good morning to Yvonne and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I suppose uh, there's little surprise today because we learned yesterday that City West has reached capacity. Yes, we just heard this news yesterday. It really is grave news. Um, Now, it's highly regrettable, but they're probably doing the right thing. We're talking about over a thousand people in City West Transit Centre, which only has capacity for 300. Many people are sleeping on chairs. This includes women, pregnant women, young children, the elderly, the vulnerable. So it's really, really challenging circumstances. And it seems to have hit a tipping point, something that we've been warning about for months. Right. Uh, So if there's no room at uh, the inn in City West, uh, what's going to happen next? Well, we've been saying for months that... uh, Can I just first say that the Department of Children and Integration, etc., and indeed the Irish people, have done an extraordinary job, as Eamon Ryan said there in that clip. And you know in LNFM, in your local area, in Gormanston College in particular recently, an incredible job has been done there in terms of accommodation and shelter for people fleeing more in the European continent. Now, what we are saying, we have moved beyond this temporary emergency phase. We've moved beyond it months ago. And all the government departments we are pleading with, and the Department of Antishock to lead this, to work together to look at long-term, medium-term solutions. Actually, medium-term, because no refugee wants to stay here forever. I was talking to a young woman yesterday who is, in fact, living in Gormanston College. She's from Kharkiv in Ukraine. She brought her mother and her grandmother over during the summer. They actually slept in the old Dublin airport floor at that time. Mm. And at the time, I was like, this is a disaster. She was like, it's fine. They're out of Kharkiv. They're Mm. safe. And now they're thriving. They're healthy. They're really, really well looked after. Her dad was still there in the dad's army under drone attack this morning. But in the meantime, we have to look after over 50,000 people here. So we we are looking for government departments to work together. The Department of Children have been carrying the can for months. They're, they are clearly at capacity. They need help. They need cross-government department assistance. We are looking at the possibility of 66,000 vacant properties in Irish towns and villages. Think what could be done long-term. Mm. In the short-term, revitalise them for refugees. And in the long-term, for Irish homeless situations. Like, there are, there are solutions we need to look at. Yeah. I know, but yeah. uh, we're, we're, we're not uh, in too much of a hurry uh, because we're six months into this. Six months ago, we were told to expect up to 100,000, maybe even 200,000. We've now 55,000. So, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, it could have been a, a lot more demanding on us. Uh, it seems as though a lot more people are going to come. Uh, you'd expect that given the assaults on civilians and people going about their daily business in Kiev mm. and other parts of uh, the country coming under fire. Uh, the talk of... Uh, uh, the uh, dams in Ukraine being uh, yeah. subjected to mines, Russian mines and that sort of thing. Uh, there's the potential of a, a nuclear strike. People are understandably leaving and will continue to leave in even greater mm. numbers. Uh, there's no quick overnight solution. And here we are six months into it, still talking about uh, developing an urgency. 
Yeah. I mean, as you say, we're six months in and look, Putin knows what he's doing. He's no, he's, he's putting pressure on the West by targeting civilians in Ukraine. They're the pawns in all of this. Like it's a horror show, really. Mm. And the last two weeks, it's kind of focused all our minds a bit, seeing the bombs and drones raining down on people. Winter is coming. 30% of Ukraine is already without electricity. The fact is more people are going to be looking for shelter in Europe. But we are just pleading two solutions that the government has so far focused on procurements that delivers volume. They focus on beds. We need to use all the tools in the box. Mm. We need to facilitate accepting the smaller offers of accommodation. I think we all know of people who are still on waiting lists of offering hosting. I know the Irish Red Cross and helping Irish hosts have been doing a phenomenal job, but they need more resources. They need help in this. We had extra resources during COVID. There are are expert people there who can lift up phones and hammer the phones. And we are in an emergency situation, but we are in a more of a medium term situation. Was it in June? I can't remember exactly when. It was a couple of months ago anyway um, that uh, City West was uh, at capacity. It was July. Was it July? Uh, uh, We were told then that a a similar centre, another, a second City West type facility would open within days if not weeks. Whatever happened to that? I'm asking, I literally asked the same question last night of my colleagues. I said, where is it? What happened there? Nothing, it seems. And in the meantime, they substituted the student accommodation, which was brilliant, mm. by the way, with emergency temporary accommodation, for example, the tents in Gormanston Camp, and then into hotels. But we're already in the end of October. Like, communities need their hotels for Christmas functions. The tourism industry is coming back April, May. So, you know, something has to give here. As I say, we're talking vacant properties. We're also talking, look at holiday homes. Mm. I don't know, maybe... 80% of holiday homes are, are, are not occupied for mm. 10 months of the year. Is there an incentive there? And these incentives could well cost the Exchequer less money than mm. what's being paid right now to overnight accommodation in hotels. It, but it's because, you know, th- these public servants mm. are really... They're but the, 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 the state will pay 400, ever. the state will pay 400 euros, won't it, uh, to people who uh, provide accommodation. Uh, should it be more than that? Well, Maybe look at utilities bills, because let's face it, there's an energy crisis. Mm. At least that. Okay. Or more incentives. Maybe, maybe there's a monthly uh, incentive payment for people with holiday homes, but they still get use in June or September mm. or something like that. Okay. Like there are ways and means. But I think that the, the Department of Children and Integration, etc., has been absolutely swamped. They have done a phenomenal job. Okay. I think it was only a year ago there was... 7,000 intake of, mm. of um, new, new arrivals in Ireland. This year we're looking at 58,000 right mm. now and it, it could increase. Um, we're, Yvonne, just, I, we're, in a, we're in a different scenario. I, you know? I, I have to talk, uh, I'm sorry for cutting across you but I have to uh, wrap yep. up. We're out of time. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us uh, this you, morning. Yvonne Judge, communication spokesperson with the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. That's our programme for today. God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.